It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Joining us now, the play-by-play voice of the Boston Celtics. It is Sean Grandy. Sean, what's going on, man? Tell me, man. You tell me. I, when we start the season, it's one long day. We never bring our head up. Like, sometimes it's hot, and then it gets really cold, and then it seems hot again, and that's the playoffs. So, you tell, you know, you are watching other things. You're watching Pasternak get this money, and you're watching the Red Sox in spring training, and you're watching what might be the greatest NHL season I have ever seen a team have. And I was a little, little kid. Like, I don't remember the Canadians teams. I remember I grew up in New York with the Islanders in the early 80s, but no NHL team that I can remember has had an absurd season like this, certainly in the modern era. Hope people are appreciating it. Yeah, it's insane. I mean, they're on pace, as you mentioned, to break the wins record and, of course, the record for points. They've already broken the record for they've beaten all 31 teams. I mean, And the best thing about this one, Sean, is this isn't like, hey, when the Warriors got Kevin Durant, you're like, okay, yeah, like this team's going to be incredible. Like nobody saw this guy. Like I thought the Bruins before the season, hey, they're a playoff team. They're a solid playoff team. But I looked at them last year, the loss to the Hurricanes. I didn't think they'd do significant damage when they got there, especially with the strength of the East, the Lightning and Carolina and New York. But for them to be the most dominating team, I mean, you got to give Don Sweeney and that group a ton of credit. They impose their will in games I, it's like a team I've never seen. What they're down three to two with three minutes to go, and they're like, "We got this." Yeah. How many of those games you feel like you're not going to hold them off? And I, I sort of remember as a Ranger growing up in New York as a Rangers fan, that's how I felt against the Islanders that we're not going to hold this lead. The Islanders are going to find a way because they always do. And I don't remember another team in the NHL at that level imposing that sort of fear. But no matter the situation, no matter when they're down, you know. Goalies are scoring goals. They're, it's it's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Because I'm a big regular season. We live and die with the playoffs and everything, right? And Jason Tatum is this, and he's not until he wins. In the play- I get it. I get all the. We're about championships around here. But if you're not enjoying, my memories as a kid come from following a team from start to finish, and yep. you know, loving the season and remembering the seasons as they go. And man, if you can't enjoy. The fact that the Celtics and the Bruins, you know, the Celtics for what, 99 of 102 days and the Bruins all year have been the best teams in their league all year. Like, this is why people hate Boston. 
And rightly so, because here people complain about it. Well, James, he hasn't done this. He's hit him in the playoffs. Yeah, wait until they play Carolina in the playoffs. No, don't wait until they play Carolina in the playoffs. Enjoy beating Calgary and Edmonton and going out on the West Coast trip and winning all these games because the playoffs are going to be there. I promise you. Yeah. And we have people writing articles about, hey, you don't want to win the President's Cup trophy because not many teams win the Stanley Cup when they win the President's Cup trophy. They're chasing history. I mean, they can be one of the teams that does it. I mean, we've seen it. It's not like it's impossible. So I want them to win. And now, especially, I want them to win everything. And the refreshing thing to me, Sean, I don't want to get into a huge thing about this, that these guys always play, right? Like how I, and to Jason Tatum's credit, he's one of the only superstars that always plays. But with the NHL, like you think Bergeron just going to be like, you know what? I don't want to play because we've already locked up the number one seed. No, he's going to be like, hey, we're chasing a record. And even if it wasn't for the record, I want to be out there. Krejci's out there two nights ago and you can barely see his eye. Like his eyes almost completely shut. That's what I appreciate about the NHL. These guys always play unless they're actually legitimately hurt. I know. Listen, David Tyree happened, right? The catch happened. But that team did something that no other team has done before. It might happen again, right, in the NFL, 16-0. But, my God, that's the best team I've ever seen. I'm sorry, Mercury Mars. You know, pop your champagne every year if you want. But <laughs> the 72 Dolphins wouldn't make it to the halftime locker room against, you know, the Patriots team in, in 2007. you got to just appreciate it takes a lot of luck in addition to everything else to be healthy and for things to go right in the playoffs. We know that. And we're going to find that out maybe the hard way with the Celtics and Bruins in the next couple of years. But – I mean, my God, these are milestone moments. And when you're doing things, when you're talking about the 77 Canadians and you're having conversations that include them, you're having a pretty special hockey season. So I just, you know, this is my always my soapbox thing about enjoying what's going on and what Boston is now. And I get it because there's been so many NBA finals and World Series or whatever, and you get numb to it. But I hope you don't because there's a lot of people right now. Sacramento is third in the West and they're ready to have a parade out there and they should and it's cool to see because this doesn't happen in other places yeah light the beam there in sacramento so hey let's let's get to the seas because there had been a couple of rough shooting nights for jason tatum and then last night he gets back to the free throw line 14 times he's just i mean he's reading he read the game so well too i mean he had that pass to al in the corner where he basically threw it behind his head for three He's got now the the one-handed whip pass that he didn't have last year where he's just he can throw it from the right wing to the corner which it looks like ordinary when you're watching it on TV but then you're like okay there's like maybe 10 guys in the NBA that can make that type of pass so and then you just look at the thing that you had up there so he has 41 11 and 8 you had this note on Twitter which I think is remarkable it's only happened 5 times in Celtics history Bird three times. John Havlicek did it once. I mean, a couple of guys you may have heard of. And now Tatum. So most importantly, before we get into Tatum, was he stat padding last night? Uh, absolutely, because uh, the game wasn't <laughs> in jeopardy anyway, shape or form. I found myself, again, I'm digressing, but that's what podcasts are for, right? So I found myself standing in between Scal and Perk last night. Oh, boy. Uh, before the game. I know. I'm, Perk's just one of the best people like ever in the history of people. So I'm standing between them last night and... They're having the Jokic debate, right, about stat padding and or, you know, trying to get stats. And they're both on different sides, you know, and Scal is sort of defending Jokic or whatever. And I, my point is that winning, Jokic affects winning maybe more than anybody else in the league. He probably should win the MVP again. I'm not going to – I promise you I will not lose sleep. If Jokic wins again or Embiid wins again, it's fine. The world will continue to spin on its axis and everything will be fine. But Jokic obviously affects winning the likes of which we had never seen. 
So what I'm saying is I don't care if he goes and gets the 10th assist because he wants the triple-double because it's not affecting the game. I And I'm saying that as someone who I'm on video forever immortalized during the Rondo streak, the 10 assist streak for a game because I hate it. And there was a game in Detroit at the Palace where the Celtics are getting killed. Horrible effort. They're getting crushed. Probably this is 2012, whatever the assist streak was. And Rondo comes out, right on time to come out with like eight assists. And Doc comes over to me and says, how many does he have? And you vision, you know, because I wasn't, I couldn't, my, the media savvy versus my natural emotion, I could not have one overcome the other. And you see me just dropping my head. Like, are you, are you kidding me? That you're asking me this question. Like, he's got eight, Doc. Are you really going to put him back? And it was my thought bubble. I'm on the air. I can't really say it. But I'm like, eight. You know, that's what I'm saying to him. He's got, and he put Rondo back in the game. And I'm like, come on. You know, so that that's stat padding for the sake of it. And if if players are into it, great. But does it, is it adversely affect winning? How much does it affect your life? Uh, as you as you said, if these guys aren't going to be allowed to, the sports scientists aren't going to let them play. They'll let them get their stats while they're in there now. Yeah, well, it, by the way, like, I remember Rondo doing that, too. Like, he would be in the middle of the lane, he'd have a shot, and he'd look for somebody, like, at the three-point line. It was just, it was it was very annoying. That was stat padding. And, I mean, Perk, he's had, he's had some crazy takes. Like, he said Russell Westbrook and Pat Beverly would be the best defensive backcourt in the NBA. A couple years ago, he said Giannis wasn't Batman. That was going to have to be Middleton. Two uh, Last year, he said the Warriors were done. Like, he, he's had some pretty bad, t- I love Perk, but he's had some pretty bad takes. Well, this I, one I made top of them all. They're 24 uh, and 0 him, when he gets triple doubles. I met him 20 years ago, obviously for the first time when he came here. And if you had said to me 20 years ago, Kendrick Perkins is going to become an international television star and a best-selling author, you would have every dollar in my pocket. Instead, you know, my ex-wife's got him, but that's not, you know, again, that's neither here nor there. The <laughs> point being, I would there's no scenario by which I would have seen that coming. And it's it's great. It was fun. You know, there was a energy in the building. I'm listen. I'm partial to Stephen A. He worked with my wife for years at ESPN, and they just did a piece for CBS a couple of weeks ago, whatever. So I'm, I have a soft spot for him. I'm a, as every as the rest of the world is. I'm an enormous Malik Andrews fan, and I I like Rachel Nichols. I've known her for years. I thought that was going to be a really tough spot to fill, and Malik has put her own stamp on it. But with all those guys there last night, and you know Jalen, Jalen's a special dude to me. And again, those my wife has known her for years. I thought. There's a extra buzz in the building with all those with the ESPN group there last night. So it's it's fun. And I think it's the nature of it that we take it all too seriously, right? Skip Bayless said this, Stephen A said this. That's their job. Yeah. That's now they, yeah, that's that's Perk's job now too. He's gonna throw out opinions. So I Correct. don't blame him for that, even if he's wrong about the Jokic thing. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the garden last night, that was electric with Tatum and Mitchell was trying to get that team back in it, which I mean, that guy is going to be an extremely tough cover for anybody in the postseason. But I did want to ask you about Grant because that was interesting where I'm sitting there in the first quarter. I'm like, oh, Grant hasn't played beginning of the second quarter. Well, Grant hasn't played again. And you're starting to think, oh, well, we saw this happen like a week and a half ago against Indiana. And you thought, oh, maybe that's partially because of the elbow. But then after the game, Joe Mazzulla said, no, it was like a matchup thing. He said the same thing after the game last night. So how surprised were you to not see Grant Williams get a, get a DNP CD? Like, I didn't think we'd have that in 2023. Yeah, a little surprised. I think you kind of go with, you know, with each line. But I think the, the plan was for him not to play a lot. If you've had games now, and this is going to be, Joe Mazzola is going to be dealing with this, right? Because when you have this kind of depth 
It isn't any given night. There was a game last week where uh, I feel I feel like it was last week. They do all blend together at some level where Hauser came in and had a great segment and ended up playing 20, 25 minutes. That might not have been the plan, but you go with the hot hand. And at some point, are you going to see what Mike Mescala can give you? Is that the scenario? You're, you could be playing Cleveland. And Cleveland's very legitimate second round possible opponent. So why aren't you looking at different things? I think that guys are going to get squeezed here. If everybody's, we started the game by saying there's this remarkable thing about this Boston Cleveland game last night, Gallinari being the exception, obviously, but to whatever degree you count that. Everybody's healthy. Oh my God, isn't this amazing? Yeah. Everybody's healthy. The Knicks were healthy too. But what comes with that is suddenly everyone's been talking all year about how the Celtics are equipped to handle these injuries because they're 9, 10, 11 deep. Well, now you're healthy and you're 9, 10, 11, 12 deep. Can't play everybody. So let's see if we're still talking about it in in a week or two. Grant's not playing. Yeah, I'll be a little surprised for a game or two here. I'm more of, all right, let's see how this one, let's see how this plays out. And does Grant, as we're talking now, does Grant come back and play 20 minutes against Brooklyn tomorrow? It's another DNP. Then if this goes on for four or five games, then yeah, we got something to talk about. Well, and I was actually encouraged that this happened, not because I don't like Grant as a player. Obviously, you need him in the postseason, especially when you're going up against Giannis. I mean, he does such a great job at him. So not that I dislike Grant as a player. I really like him as a player. But my whole thing was like, Against the Knicks, we saw Joe Mazzulla get Mike Muscala in the game where it felt like he wasn't going to be in the rotation. It's like, hey, let's see what we can do. Let's play some five out, try to get in a run here. Because I did feel like in that game against Philadelphia on Saturday night where they win on the great shot by Jason Tatum and all that, I felt like, man, it feels like your advantage here is having Derek White and Brogdon on the court and trying to speed up that Philadelphia team. And I felt like he should have gone back to that at the end of the game more rather than sort of play big. So I do feel like at least what we saw last night is Joe Missoula and in the game, now granted they lost against New York, but he tried different things. It feels like he is going to be more pliable. Maybe part of that is getting the interim tag lifted as well, where it feels like, okay, now he's in charge. And I hope that that means going forward, like if he goes back and watch that 76ers game, maybe it will change next time. Maybe we will see more Malcolm Brogdon and Derek White later in that game. And listen, uh, that's the other example. Grant is the example up front and in the backcourt, you're closing games you got Brogdon, White, and Smart. They can't all play. If you need Rob in a certain matchup here, you can't. This is, this is the danger. This is why everybody has to sacrifice so everybody can eat, and winning games is, is what matters. But you can almost see if the Celtics dare to not win a championship, and it's ultimate crime they would commit against the fan base by not winning an NBA championship, you can almost see <laughs> where the fingers are going to point, right? At Joe, like the, the Joe conversation is here he comes into this impossible situation impossible situation and starts 21 and 5 with the best team in the league and the best offense in the history of ever and all the above where can people vent their frustration if it doesn't go well in the end because they're not going to you don't feel like they're going to vent it at Tatum and Brown or whatever they say well Joe Mazzola didn't play the right guys because he had too many guys to play so you can sort of see so you know you work this out now and you figure out the matchups and you you cobble it together. I'm, I'm laughing because when you talked about having the interim tag removed, it reminded me, and you're too young to remember, which means probably most of you are too young to remember, when Jay Leno and David Letterman were fighting over the who was going to succeed Johnny Carson for the Tonight Show. Jay Leno had the job, and then there were a lot of people who thought, hey, we made a mistake. Maybe Letterman should be the guy. You know, there were a lot of Letterman people. And eventually they decided, here's what we're going to do. We're going to stay with Leno, and Letterman's going to end up going to CBS. And they held a big press conference to announce it at NBC and Leno goes to the front and says, I mean, I, they say we live in an age of lowered expectations, but look, 
you people are all here and I already have the job. Like what we're celebrating here is that I haven't been fired. Like that's the big announcement that was made. Everybody's going crazy. So like that was the big announcement that Joe hadn't been fired. That Joe Mazzula is the coach of the Celtics, which he has been all year long. But there were, you know, obviously legal reasons and a lot of reasons that it had to be interim this and interim that. And I can tell you from talking to him every night doing the show, he has asked me and I have honored the request after 20 years of never doing this. He doesn't, I, there are things you fall back on as crutches. And I say, our conversation with the coach is brought to you by whatever. And he says to me, I'd rather just be Joe. So I've literally changed it to our conversation with Joe Missoula is because he doesn't want to be the coach. He just wants to be Joe. And that's that. And if he's going to be who he's going to be. And if media don't like his one word, jujitsu Joe answers, like Vulcan <laughs> mind melds, you know, one word answers to challenge him. Tough because that's this is this is what you got. So wait, do the players not call him coach either? They just call him Joe. That's I, I think everybody calls him because they had a different. Everybody's got a different relationship with him. They, even when when Brad Stevens came here, there was that prop. So people ended up with Coach Brad. Coach Brad ended up being a thing, including with my son, who was like three when he first met him in his entire life. He always called him Coach Brad, like Coach Brad, Coach Brad. So I, I think it's a evolutionary thing. I always call coaches coach the same way you call doctor doctor. And because you studied, you know, you went to medical school to earn your degree, you earned the right to be called doctor. So I always felt the same way about coach. But if he doesn't want it, if he wants to be Joe, he's earned that right too. Yeah. The interesting thing to me is going to be if there's a game in the postseason we saw last year where actually Marcus Smart was on the bench, right? And he may actually gave him credit after one of those games, like that he's a great teammate and all that, because Derek White, I mean, he's the plus minus king. They're outscoring teams by almost 10 points per 100 possessions with him on the court. So that may be a difficult decision too. Like at some point, if White's really rolling in a postseason series and maybe Smart isn't having his best game and Smart's sort of like the established guy, if we actually see a situation where he closes with White instead of Marcus Smart, we'll see if he actually does that because thus far he hasn't done that. Now he's closed with both of them, but if the decision is a one-on-one, that would be a difficult decision to make he's not and he's not making the decision i guarantee you, joe mazzola isn't thinking well marcus's feelings may be hurt if i don't play him for the last couple of minutes Look, let's win game two of this hey we're down by six here in game two at home in the first round against brooklyn or atlanta or whoever it's going to be we got to win this game and marcus doesn't have it tonight and Derek's on fire and whatever you know brogdon's knocked down a couple of threes listen i i can assure you this is one of the issues, one of the underlying issues in 2019. Everyone puts it all on Kyrie, and I get it. because that's the Everyone's just looking for the easy way out. And Kyrie deserves plenty of blame for what happened in 2019. But one of the underlying problems, and maybe the biggest in the 2019 team, is that you are asking players, young players, Tatum, Brown, Rozier, young players who hadn't gotten paid yet, who hadn't established themselves in the NBA, which you have to do. you got to figure out who you are in the NBA. And then getting getting paid is a double-edged thing. It's not just the money. Yeah, you want the money. You want to get paid. But it's also, I belong here. I'm in the league. I've got my place. It's hard to have guys like that as role players who sometimes are in, sometimes are out in a secondary role, especially when they had gone to the conference finals the year before. Tara Rozier being a perfect example of that. And that when you think back to the teams that won, when Golden State in that era was winning championships, their second group, whatever you want to call them, weren't made up of young guys on their first contract. It was Andre Iguodala and Sean right. Livingston and Andrew Bogut and guys like that who had been there and now they want to win. 
this Celtics group, and I know Grant, in theory, with what I'm saying, not in terms of wanting to win, but in terms of contractually, he's an outlier to what I'm saying because he's waiting on his first big payday, which is looming. But what I'm talking about here is pretty much everybody that was in that room, and Brogdon is an exception to this, but he fits into this category. They are driven not by minutes or that even desire, which I don't think is selfish. I think it's natural and normal for young players to want to get their place. But these guys aren't driven by that. They're driven by Golden State celebrating a championship within earshot across the hallway. That's what they hear every time they're on their home floor. So uh, what I'm getting at, that's a long-winded say and a broadcaster way and a play-by-play way and a Sean Grandy way of saying what I could have just said right away, which is that Marcus Smart doesn't care if he doesn't play the last five minutes of one game. He wants to win. Oh, it's a great point. I think the guy that maybe fits into this more than anybody is Al Horford, right? Because you look at him, he hit his first six threes against Cleveland. He's now 107 of 243, 44%, fifth in the NBA, first among centers. He took 18 threes his first six years in the NBA. And it's such an interesting journey because he goes from being, what, the third overall pick in the draft, and he's a star in Atlanta. He's an all-star. He leaves there to get the big payday with the Celtics and join a team that had a legitimate chance or aspirations to become a contender again. He leaves to go to Philadelphia. It doesn't work with Embiid, which I think they got to regret that decision. Like, you could have made it work with Joel Embiid and Al Horford. Like, we've seen Al play with the big men right now. But nonetheless, he goes to Oklahoma City, and they put him on ice the second half of the season. I always thank Sam Presti for this, even though he doesn't know me personally. Thank you so much. That was for a resting. big help. Yeah, thank you for resting him up. But man, like this is incredible to see the year that Al Horford's had. Like you can have, you could make an argument that he's been the third most important player on the team this year because nobody else can really do what Al can do for this team. And this is after the year he had. I mean, almost every year he's been here, he's been an integral part of what the Celtics have done and underappreciated at the same time. And in the 2018 run, in both those runs to the conference finals, Al Horford was playing. It's I always said this is really funny because Al Horford and Kevin Garnett are the two most opposite personalities you will ever come across in your life. They would be <laughs> not be matched up on the dating game or on any social media site. You'd be swiping left, right? Because they would not match up the exact opposite personalities. Yet Al Horford was playing the role that Kevin Garnett played on the on the new big three teams of that big elite defender, knockdown shots. And yeah, he was an offense, but he was happy almost to take that secondary role. And uh, the quote I always use that they always said about Billy Joel, that his dream would be to play backup in somebody else's band. He was just too good, right? And he had to be the front man and whatever. Well, Al, Al's dream, especially like when Kyrie got here and Al, suddenly they weren't sticking all the mics in his face and he could just get dressed and go home. He's the happiest guy. Happiest guy there was, but he's been tremendous. And the free throw thing is hysterical. I had that game in Dallas. That was a TV game I did with Scal when he ended that. He hadn't been in the free throw line in two months. <laughs> he had not gotten a free throw. It was whatever, November 14th. It was at the OKC game until whenever we were in Dallas, 5th, 6th of January is the game after OKC. And he literally had not been to the free throw line in two months when he lived in the paint, right, as a younger player. He got there four or five times, but... The game has changed and he has evolved with it, like Brooke Lopez, like all these other guys, like every major league pitcher and hitter we're going to see, uh, we're going to find out who evolves and who can play with the new rules. And Al's, the game has changed and he's changed with it. Yeah. He, he's been tremendous this year. Basically, every year he's been with the Celtics. He's And it's crazy that I feel like he's better offensively this year than he was last year. Hey, he did have a free throw on that game Wednesday. Got the he end, did. He had the end yeah. one, which was nice to and see. One. 
Yeah. And I do love That's when 18, Al... 18 or 19 now for the year. Yeah. It's, is there anything better than when Al gets fired up? Because you don't see and, it that often. And here's the thing. Keep this in mind, too, because we saw it against Milwaukee. What well, first possession of the game last night, he went inside. Like he, you still see playoff Al sometimes. Right at Mobley. It matters. Right. Like there's indication that when there's because there's going to be a playoff game, play this back in May. There's going to be a playoff game where he's going to have to be playoff out. And he has, I think, rested his body and done everything he needs to do to be prepared. I mean, knock on wood, it's more, anything could still happen on March the 2nd. We know that. But right now, through 60 plus games, the Celtics have managed to keep themselves relatively healthy, get the rest of the guys they needed to rest. Al didn't play any of those back to back games. I remember earlier, remember when Blake Griffin was the fifth starter? You know, they're throwing that junk as the fifth starter to come in here and give you give you a spot start oh, like, yeah. once in a while <laughs> on the second night of the Tim back. To back. And, and it was great. And it was and he did an unbelievable job with it. He's such a great guy to have a perfect guy to have in the locker room for this team. Talking about guys who have spent to the circus and now just want, you know, want to win. He's done it all. He's done, he's you know, he's been the top center topic of discussion, third in the MVP race. He's done all that, had the disappointments with the Clippers tabloid, you know, fodder, all the stuff that comes with it. Subject of one of the greatest moments in the history of the Jimmy Fallon Tonight Show when Jimmy Fo- when, uh, Jamie Foxx did the Doc Rivers. It's not, it's not Blake's fault. It's not, it's not on Blake. It's not Blake's fault. Uh, it's not, which, by the way, if you, know, if you don't know what I'm talking about, please YouTube that. It's hilarious. You got to check it it's out. the greatest moment ever of all time. Um, that he's been there and he's sort of part of that wisdom. And the one thing about this team, you have two star players. Two young star players carrying this franchise, and Blake and Brogdon would be great with this. And they, the one thing they don't know, Tatum and Brown are who they are as players, but they don't know that it's not always like this around the league. The situation you have here in Boston with this particular fan base going crazy and the stuff right. that comes to playing with this franchise, it's not always like this. And that's wisdom you get from the guys who, you know, who have been around that have seen it. Yeah, no doubt about that. And the other big man, Robert Williams. So his impact number has been really good. I mean, basically they're playing like better than the league's best offense with him on the floor, a top four defense. I mean, obviously he helps. They weren't rebounding offensively when he wasn't there. And now when he's on the court, they're about, they would rank around ninth. Without him on the court, they're worse than the worst team in the NBA. So he brings that element. The lob threat we see where it's like, it's, I talked to Drew Hanlon a couple of weeks ago, Sean, about, he was telling me how much Tatum likes playing with him. I, because- I heard that. That was good. That was really good. People should, uh, here's a plug from somebody else other than you. Listen to that because it was pretty interesting about, it's a great insight into what players are really like for this idea that people don't think that players live and die about getting better and winning. It's a, there's really good insight into that. Yeah, I thought Hanlon was awesome. And it, like he talked about the Jalen relationship and just stuff that they worked on. So I thought he was he was really good. He was really I mean, obviously, the guy works with a bunch of NBA stars, but specifically with Rob. I mean, <laughs> we saw him a couple weeks ago against the Spurs. He had that three point block and then he dunks it on the other side. So it's just really like the lob threat. It's an element they didn't have for the majority of the season. Where do you think he is compared to like pre-injury Rob prior to last year? Is like the injury he had at the end of the season. Like, I feel like he's getting pretty close to that guy. He looks like he's there. It looks like he's there to me. And there's the other element of Rob that people don't realize. It's it's this team is odd. Like you think of Grant Williams because of the way he is as being older than he actually is. When he's younger than Tatum and Brown, Rob is older. I mean, he's an older player than you think. Like because we didn't see him early in the first couple of years, and because he played in college or whatever. And I think he's has more of that 
that leadership, that older player leadership DNA in him. And I think that's that's a value too. So it's again, it's knock on wood. And people say, well, you just you're being optimistic. I'm not. They've been the best team for the most part all year. And I think if you want to be uh, fearful is the wrong word, is that they were playing significantly better last year in the second half than they are now. They're the best team and they're an elite team and they've got a real chance to win and they've got the playoff experience that matters, which we saw with the the new big three Celtics who were better in the playoffs in the later years of that run because of all that experience than they were in the first year when they had the dominant regular season. So I think everything's good. It's just, I think we're going to look back historically. I'm just, this is just a wild off the wall thought I literally had today. But five, 10 years from now, regardless of whether the Celtics win three championships and no chip, whatever, however this era turns out, you're going to realize that they should have had 2022, that they were better than Golden State. And yep. that yep. was about, it was a learning experience that that team from January through April, and then the, the reason it was in my head is because you talked about Rob and that the Rob injury is the moment at which they cease being this historically dominant team. They were a good team. They were the best team. They were the Saturday, ended up being the second best team from that point on. But from mid-January to the Rob injury at the end of March, the Celtics were playing as well as basically anybody ever has over a 30-game stretch, beating teams by 15 a game the rest of the year. So are the Celtics as dominant as they were last year? I mean, I don't, I don't I am so tired of the narrative that the Celtics only beat Milwaukee because Chris Middleton was out last year when the Celtics won their games easily. Is Chris Middleton going to make an eight-point difference in that series in every game? Like, probably not. So that's a that's a fallback. Home court matters. And here's the thing that concerns me. The basketball gods, the Bucks punted the game away on the last day of the season last year. Threw it away. Yep. Celtics didn't. Celtics finished ahead of them, and they got game seven. Everybody was really happy about the Milwaukee game from a Celtics standpoint. Why wouldn't you be when the Celtics B slash C team takes the Bucs to overtime in their home floor? But the Celtics still punted that game away in a year in which the season series between the Celtics and Bucs is three games, not four. Right. And two of them are in Milwaukee. So did you punt the season series away and the tiebreaker that night? And that kind of stuff from a basketball god standpoint always, always bugs me, assuming we're talking like everybody else is that regardless of what happens in New York and Cleveland and Philadelphia and whatever surprises are the Quinn Snyder Hawks, whatever surprise awaits us in the first two rounds, that it's still when the dust clears going to be the Celtics and Bucks. Yeah. Well, please don't dribble the ball in front of Drew Holiday. I mean, that guy is just ridiculous. I mean, I didn't know that about Rob either, that he was sort of like a leader with this team. And the comparison I've made, I've made it several times on this pod, Sean, is just losing him last year because you didn't really get the great version of Rob back until really the Warrior series when he was plus 30 in a series that they lost somehow. He still wasn't, and he was on, good things yeah. were happening when he was on the floor because he was a threat, but he wasn't, again, he was battling back from injury. He wasn't the same. To me, it was it like, again. yeah, to me, it was like when Brady lost Gronk, right? Where Gronk, when Brady had Gronk, they were unbeatable. Like, I know yep. they lost, but you weren't losing with Gronk. I felt that way about the Celtics last year. Like, they mm-hmm. could still win without Rob, but if Rob was 100% last year, they would have won the championship. And I'm with you. I mean, the Middleton thing is just irritating to me. So, hey, I did this poll. The Red Sox, the Red Sox without Tommy Pham now. I've never been, this is this is how I know I've succeeded as a father. So, Ian Brown asked on Twitter the other day, who, who had the most games leading off the Red Sox last year. And I, I had the names in my head, but I, you know, I didn't have a definitive answer. When I asked my son, he turned 11, he goes, Tommy Pham. I'm like, man, he nailed it. 
He like, got that's it. Exactly right. He got it. That's right. But, that's a good guess. Know, I w- I would not have guessed that. I would yeah, not have got that right. Dur- I, you know, Jalen Duran did, uh, didn't play enough games, and then uh, I would have guessed Kike, but he was hurt a lot. Right, Kike, but Kike was out a ton. So. Yeah, I mean, we'll see what morning, they'll do. I, I saw Arroyo hitting a home run, two home runs in yeah, spring grand, training, grand which you'd love to see. Yeah, love to see spring that. Spring training is, uh, yeah, it's, it, it makes you feel warm, right? Yeah, I know you're a season ticket holder. I'm, I'm like higher than most on this team. Like, I, would you uh, would you like a little breaking news on your uh, on your pod? I got it. Let's hear it. So, uh, as pe- some people know, I grew up in New York, uh, and the Mets were my team. I, the Mets were my number one team, and my son roots for them a little bit because of me. The same I root for the Red Sox and the season ticket holder because of him. So, uh, this is breaking. I haven't talked about this yet publicly. A few people know, but a few people are about to know anyway. So next week. Uh, and this might be as bucket list as it gets for me. So next week on SNY, I'm going to do a couple of games with Keith Hernandez and Ron Darling. Phil oh, sweet. Gary Cohen. On, that's sick. And that's about, that's about as bucket list as it gets. Oh, that's awesome. So I've been, that's the reason we're talking about Tommy Pham. I'm sort of like, because Tommy Pham's on the Mets now. I'm sort of knee deep in, uh, you know, Brett Beatty and Francisco Alvarez and all the Mets prospects and, uh, Ronnie Mauricio hitting 450 foot home runs, but yeah, it does make you warm. It just makes you feel warm. Like when you're like, you could say you could not be optimistic about the Red Sox and the season that's about to start, but Red Sox are going to be ephemeral by the end of the month. It's March. I know. It's crazy. So it's just, you know, it gives you a warm feeling and that means Celtics and Bruins playoffs are going to be there. So it's going to be a fun, fun spring up here. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Have fun with that. So I did want to ask you this before I let you go. So I did a poll yesterday before the Cavs game because, you know, they had just lost to the Knicks and they were playing the Cavs. So out of the teams, like not the Bucks in the Sixers category, which team would worry you the most as a Celtics fan? The Knicks, the Cavs, or the Heat? So the results were 50% said the Heat, 39% Cavs, 11% Knicks. And I agree with the rankings because Spolstra scares me. You know, they always want to break out zone. And Bam was the best player in a playoff series against the Celtics in the bubble. We know what Jimmy Butler can do. No matter, like, what his field goal percentage is, like, he finds a way. He lives at the free throw line all that. I'd put the Cavs second just because, I mean, Mitchell's just – that guy's unbelievable. I mean, the Euro steps he has last night, I mean, he was tremendous in that game. And then the Knicks are a good team. Like, this isn't an indictment on the Knicks. I just don't think they're at the same level as these other teams. So how would you sort of rank those three teams in terms of the team you would worry about the most? I think that's the opposite of recency bias. I think that's people who watched Eric Spolstra and the Heat against the Celtics in years past and aren't really watching the last few weeks. Knicks play Miami Friday night, which is sort of – that's interesting game to me. Uh, as to what is really happening here. I think that, first of all, I think it's going to be the Nets because I think Miami's going to move up into that spot. I don't think Brooklyn is going to win enough games to hang on to the, the the work that Durant and Kyrie got them that high. I think they're going to fall to seven. Uh, and, you know, who knows with Celtics and Bucks one and two. I think those are really damn. I, I said to somebody today, that Cleveland, New York first round series, assuming that's going to happen, that's going to be some super high level stuff that's high energy with young players uh you know back you know madison square garden listen people in boston don't want to hear this but the nba is just much better when the knicks are good and is there's an energy to being in that building whether the knicks are good or bad there's this this extraordinary energy because they will turn on the knicks if they're not playing the right way and the celtics i've seen for 20 years i've watched the celtics go into new york and win there i post that stat and posting it for years that the celtics in the years i've been here since 2001 have a better record at Madison Square Garden than they do at TD Garden. That's how dominant, and it's changed because they've lost four or five, but at one point it was like 20, 
I think the Celtics have won 24 of 35 games in New York, which is insane for an NBA road team. But, man, Josh Hart, I love Josh Hart. That's a great piece for them, especially yeah. with Brunson, something they were missing. Tibbs has got that going. I don't – you know, we're going to find out if you can count on Randall, right, in a playoff situation as good as he's been in this regular season. I just think that's a great series. I'm not – the Hawks situation to me is still troubling because I love Quinn Snyder, but Trey Young kind of – Trey Young has not responded well to don't tell anybody, but he's not the best player on that team right now. I mean, that's just that – Murray is that that good. Uh, I understand why people are saying Miami instinctively. I think Cleveland and New York are a grade above Miami. Both better. Right now, going to the playoffs. But I don't think, I'll be honest with you, I don't think you're going to have to worry about any of those teams until the second round. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the good thing for the Celtics. But yeah. yeah. It's going to be an absolute, like, I think there's six good teams. Like, if I count Miami as one of those teams, yeah. and I just fear, maybe it's just me fearing Miami because of last I, year, but, and the bubble year. I know the teams are all your, different. No, but. here's the thing, right? You, you, they took your lunch money. They're the bully that took your <laughs> lunch money. And even though you're bigger and stronger now, it's still, you have the memory of the bully taking your lunch money. So it, it makes sense to have that, you know, the fear of familiarity. And Spo is, Spo's that dude. I don't think there's any question. He's all the fame coach but i i'm not you know and bam is bam but robert williams hasn't is sort of healthy they had that one game they played i don't think rob played in that game uh they had another one of those celtics throwaway back-to-back games was the uh that game in miami in january so i don't don't put a lot of stock in that they're not playing great right now and i think cleveland and new york are absolutely legit top seven eight teams some really good teams in the east a good team in the east is going home in the first round maybe two of them and yeah. an elite championship caliber team is not going to the conference finals because the top of the East with all, yeah, again, Durant left and Kyrie left and the West got stronger, but all that did was take Brooklyn out of the elite group. You still have Philadelphia and Cleveland and now New York playing like it. So that's five and Miami would be six. And how many teams in the West, how many teams in the West right now are you taking against say Cleveland in a seven game series? I'm not so sure. I'm as, I'm as high on yeah, Phoenix t- as anybody, but more next year. I'm of the – listen, I, you didn't ask, but to me, the Suns, everyone's talking about them winning a championship. Maybe next year. Right now, to me, Phoenix traded away the guys they would need to win this year. Johnson and yeah. Bridges. Are the, if they had Johnson and Bridges with that group, I'm all in. But it's almost like to make – it's a Faustian bargain, right? To get Durant, you had to subtract the pieces that you would need to win with Durant. And Booker. Yeah. Like, obviously, you do the trade if you're the Suns because it's Kevin oh, Durant. Like, part. New owner? Are you kidding me? Not, yeah. Uh, you don't think about it. Yeah. How about the fact? Here's my favorite part of yesterday as we're talking this Thursday. So, my favorite part of Wednesday was Kevin Durant making his debut of all the places and all the gin joints in all the world in Charlotte where he and Kyrie leaned up against the wall four years ago and made their big, you know, if I ever get to this place, it's Sewantaneo, and they just go behind this brick wall or whatever, and they're making their plans for one day we'll be, you know, we'll be together again. And we'll see how that all turned out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll see how Durant does. How, how did Red, how does Red even find, I mean, what are the odds of Red finding that money? Like, <laughs> is, go, hey, there's a brick wall in Maine. Go find the, I mean, of all the, th- the things that weren't believed, I, I'm more likely to believe he tongued his way out after 17 years than Red finding this random brick wall in the middle of the state of Maine. 
<laughs> well, Whatever. didn't Doc uh, put didn't Doc put like money up at the Staples Center, like in the ceiling or something? It felt. I can tell you something. All the stories that, that get overplayed these days, I always thought that was one of the most underplayed stories ever. I remember talking to Doc before Game Six. Who did they beat? Orlando in the conference finals. I remember saying to him before Game Six, "Can I, can I tell the story if we win the game tonight?" Because I was so I was protective of it because I knew it that he hit literally in February when he hit the money. The Celtics in 2010. I've said this to Scal before. The Celtics, not Greg Popovich, the Boston Celtics in 2010 invented load management, but they just did it during games by not playing. They would just were out on the floor for a lot of those games while guys were running around and they were getting, that was where load management was invented. <laughs> I'm just not going to try. I'm going to dress and play in the game. But this is the invention of load management was that that 2010 Celtics team losing by 30, look up some of the names, some of these great names in history, Andre Blotch, coming in and dropping 30. Earl Barron had like 20 rebounds against them, playing for the Knicks. I mean, these horrendous, they had a terrible loss to New Jersey. So the Nets were the worst team in the league in that year. So that's where load management was invented. And this was the team, he said, everybody put your money up in the thing because we're coming back here to play the Lakers, you know, in the finals. And then it actually happened, which was unthinkable because, yeah, you know, Orlando was good and there were good teams in the East, but Cleveland was Cleveland in 2010. There was no... You know, this there was no scenario. I really thought they had a chance to get to the conference finals. I famously I did a pregame hit with Michael Holly when he was doing before the Celtics on whatever version of NBC Boston it was back then. I don't think it was Prism, but I've lost track of the many channels it has been. And I said, it was coming off a really bad loss. I said, Max and I will be in Cleveland for the conference, you know, mark it down. And I was just berated, obviously, on the air for that hot take that the Celtics would survive it, but they did. Uh, it just wasn't thinkable if they would be able to beat. We thought they'd play Cleveland in the conference finals, not in the second round. But that was unthinkable then that that could happen. So you don't, you really don't know. Yeah, unbelievable. That is Sean Grandy, of course, play-by-play voice of the Boston Celtics. Sean, have a great rest of the season. And hey, man, enjoy the baseball next week with the Mets. Congrats on that. Yeah, it's going to be, I mean, that's really, you're just, that's sort of a bucket list thing, right? Like my, my, my 13, I'm sure your 13 year old self has two, two athletes, right? Like, so for me, for like Ron Darling and Keith Hernandez, like all I need now is for, again, dated reference for old people, but all I need now is for like Elle McPherson to call me. And my entire 13 year old life is like completely has been, you know, completed. So. Uh, yeah, it's going to be uh, that. That will be fun. Celtics run is going to be fun. How about Mike? Uh, Manny, we were talking about load management when it's tough for players to sit out when Mike Gorman's out there with one eye, right? And oh, incredible! Old. Like, isn't this amazing? Unbelievable! I pulled him aside he, last time. I'm like, I'm like, Mike, what are you doing? What are you doing? Rest up, man. We got let's let's we're going to stretch this thing out. We got to keep Mike here. Yeah, he had, a deta- he had a detached retina. That's retina. I, I heard him saying that like he woke up or he was out to eat, I think, with his yep. brother and his sister and he couldn't see anything all of a sudden. Yep. And he went to the hospital. They had to do an operation on him like the next morning. So I'm glad he's OK. But I mean, that is true. I mean, he is ba- he's battling. He's out there the past two games like that. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And he's like, inventing a new look. I think we I think we should all I think we should all be wearing it. Like we should all be doing the whole the whole broadcast team. We should all be pirates like for the rest. It can be like the uh you know cowboy up. Right? Oh yeah, there you go. You know for- solidarity. Yeah, no question. All right, Sean. Thanks so much for the time, my friend. You got it, man. 
All right, coming up next, the Bruins make another trade and they extend their star player. We'll get to it next. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there, chatting with Sean Grandy, of course. Always enjoy chatting with Grandy about the Seas. All right, so I did want to get to the Bruins because they've been busy, and so they traded for Tyler Bertuzzi from Detroit. They give up a hefty price, by the way, a 2014 first-round pick, even though it is protected, picks 1 through 10, and then a 2025 fourth-rounder, which is not that important, but the first-rounder is. So this move sort of has a lot of layers to it, right? The Bees plays Taylor Hall, on LTIR today, and Nick Foligno on IR. So they get $6 million in long-term injured reserve cap relief with the Taylor Hall move. They use $2.37 million of that to get Bertuzzi in the trade. So let's get to the Hall piece of this first, okay? So Don Sweeney said on Thursday that there's no timeline for Taylor Hall or Nick Foligno to get back to the lineup. Both are, of course, dealing with lower body injuries. They both got hurt over the past couple of games. Now, Sweeney also said that, quote, the news we got was a little discouraging. He said, we have six weeks until the playoffs, and it's unlikely we'll see either one of them until then. Okay, so not the news you want to hear. Like, you see the trade? Oh, they're getting Bertuzzi. And then it's like, okay, this isn't good because Taylor Hall is dealing with at least a significant injury. So Hall, by the way, is getting a second opinion on his lower body injury, which you love that about hockey. They just say lower body injury or upper body injury. They don't give you the specifics, right? So Sweeney said surgery has not been ruled out for either Hall or Felino. And by the way, if you're Taylor Hall, you don't get a second opinion if you got good news, right? If they're like, hey, just rest it for three weeks, whatever the injury is, and you'll be back and ready to go. No, he obviously got bad news. That's why he's seeking out the second opinion. All right, so naturally... The Tampa Bay comparison comes into play here, right? The Lightning, if you go back to what they did a couple of years ago, they freed up $9.5 million in cap room by putting Nikita Kucherov on long-term IR, and then he came back for the playoffs in that second cup that Tampa Bay won. So it was a loophole. It was cap circumvention. And I mean, Kucherov, by the way, in that playoff run, 23 games, he had 32 points, and the Lightning went into the postseason $18 million over the salary cap, but they could do that because once the playoffs begin, you don't need to be cap compliant. So the Bruins are now in a similar situation. It's a little bit different, right? Because this happened in the middle of the season. They weren't planning for this. But hey, if it ends up happening where Hall, of course, who's a former Hart Trophy winner as well, not that he's on Kucherov's level, but if he comes back and you already had the addition of Bertuzzi, why not take advantage of it, right? I mean, that would be perfect if Hall's ready to go for the postseason and you already have Bertuzzi who is coming over in the trade from Detroit, okay? But that's a lot of hope because this Bertuzzi trade to me and you heard Montgomery on Thursday talking about this as well. I mean, the injuries triggered the move. Like this now became a necessity to add a guy like Bertuzzi because of the injury to Hall. I mean, Felino as well, but more specifically Hall, right? So now if you look at it in terms of the Bruins, they have no first round picks each of the next two seasons. They have no seconds in 2023 either. Okay, so that means then that 2024 is top 10 protected. And as I alluded to, it's likely to to convey because it's top 10 protected unless the Bruins completely fall off a cliff next season. I mean, that pick is going to convey. So if you're Don Sweeney, and this is why it's all about the injury situation, are you giving up a protected first rounder in 2024 if you're confident that Taylor Hall is coming back for the postseason? No way. And this is nothing against Bertuzzi. Like, I like the move now where the Bruins are at, but it's not the fact that the pick is gone. It's just... That's a tool that 2024 first round pick is an asset that you could use 
next season to upgrade your roster. And now that pick's gone. And remember, here's the other component to this, why they wouldn't make the move if it wasn't for the injuries, is Bertuzzi's an unrestricted free agent this summer, right? Now, you can always get picks back, right? If you make a trade in the offseason with some of your guys, some of your core guys. But I just feel like this move, clearly it was a necessity more than an addition you wanted to make, right? And this is not meant to be a criticism of Bertuzzi. I like the player. It's just the reality. So, I want to believe that Hall is going to come back and you can just add him to this group. But right now it just feels like, and it would be insane if you get Hall and Bertuzzi both playing, like this team would be completely loaded, right? If you And they're already loaded. It would be amazing. And it would be unbelievable if this happens. But I just don't feel like, if I'm a betting man, I don't believe Hall is coming back, especially if they're talking about surgery being an option here. So let's get to Bertuzzi. He's been battling injuries this season, some hand things, 14 points in his 29 games. Last year, he had 20 goals in 68 games, 62 points. Some of the advanced numbers are really good for him in terms of the Corsi rating with him on the ice in Detroit this year, which means the percentage of shots on goal, missed shots, and block shots was at 57.8%. So some of those numbers favor Bertuzzi. And it's another guy that plays with edge. Remember, him and Marshawn really went at it back in 2018, and it started an all-out brawl. So this guy, just like we talked about Orlov and especially Hathaway as well, that they picked up at the trading deadline, these are guys that like to get into it, that like to play with an edge, which is one thing that I did feel like sort of the Bruins were missing with the exception of Marshawn. Like, now you got some real guys that want to ruffle some feathers with the opponent. So for Don Sweeney here, I give him credit. You felt like you may have a hole with the Hall situation and you say, fuck the future. I owe it to these guys right now to upgrade the roster. And he's thinking about now, not into the future with a roster with Bergeron and Krejci. This is the way that you have to think. And even in a sense, Marshan, right? It's not like he's young anymore either. And you get, if you think about what they did at the deadline, you get Orlov, Hathaway, and Bertuzzi. You gave up picks. I understand that. But the only player... <laughs> You gave up was Craig Smith. I mean, this is unbelievable. So, look, I don't like the way that the deal happened because it means bad Hall news, obviously. But I love that Don Sweeney helped these guys out. And this is a team that already broke one NHL record this season. They've beaten all 31 teams. Never happened before. And they're on pace for the points record. And they're on pace for the wins record as well. So I like this. Now, the other bit of business with the Bruins is it finally happened. David Pasternak has been extended. It's an eight-year contract worth $90 million. The cap hit is going to be 11.25. So he'll be signed through his 34-year-old season. So you have him for his entire prime, and that's the 2030-2031 season. And in terms of the cap hit, he's actually going to be behind Panarin. So he'll not even be the highest paid wing in the NHL, which you think he would have been because he's the next guy up after Panarin, right? So some of the centers in front of him, of course, McKinnon in Colorado. And obviously you have Connor McDavid, Austin Matthews ahead of him in two. Uh, Eric Carlson is also going to be in front of him, of course. And so he'll be six next season in terms of the cap hit. So a minor win for the Bruins, I would say that they paid him less than Panarin, but Pasta this year, if you look at it on the season, he's tied for, what, fourth in points. And if you look at Panarin, he's actually 20th in points. So he's been better than Panarin this season. Pasta, of course, the 42 goals, which is second in the NHL. So we know he's one of the best finishers in the league. He's actually, over the past couple of years, improved defensively as well. And he's in the prime of his career. So we knew this was going to happen. 
and we knew it was going to be somewhere close to $90 million in eight years. You thought at some point maybe it's going to be $88 million just because of the synergy with the number. But no, he got the $90 million. And you were going to have to pay. He has the super agent in J.P. Barry. So you knew this was going to happen in terms of the money. But you paid market value for a star player. This is what you do. You don't fuck around. You get your star here long term. And one of the things I was thinking about when they made this deal official is, isn't this nice where you sign one of your best players? I never felt like Pasta was a flight risk and he was heading into unrestricted free agency, right? Did you ever think the Pasta was going to lead? No, because the Bruins take care of their guys. Bergeron has played his whole career here. Krejci, same thing, except the one year that he wanted to get away from Bruce Cassidy, he went overseas last year and he came back. And then you look at Chara, where once they traded for him, he becomes the captain and they get all the meat out off the bone from Char, and then they move on from him when he's basically done as like a competent player for you, and you move on from Char. But basically, he played his whole career here. Charlie McAvoy already got extended. Now Pasta gets extended. This is what I like about the Bruins organization. You keep your stars here. It's no bullshit. You have good players. You have a good culture. You have a good fan base. Let's keep them here. Compare that to Heim Bloom running the Red Sox right now. Well, Mookie's gone. And remember... They got nothing back from him, like Alex Verdugo. Like, that's it. And they didn't value how important he was to the organization. Heimblum also underrated the player. Mookie Betts, they stopped negotiations at 300 mil. They said, that's it. Nope, we're not paying the going rate. We're not going to pay over $300 million for Mookie Betts. Xander Bogarts, they actually could have avoided the Bogarts situation if they just gave him the Altuve deal prior to last season, which would have been around 160 mil. We can all understand why he didn't pay Bogarts 280 mil, but 160 mil before last season, that could have gotten it done. These are two like star players, homegrown players for you that you let go, right? So where the Bruins say, hey, these are our stars. These are our players. We're making sure that Pasternak's going nowhere. McAvoy's going nowhere. And they don't want to go anywhere. They want to stay here. The Red Sox say, hey, you know what? Mookie Betts, top five player in the game, hit 346 in his MVP season. We can let him go. And then, hey, you know what, Xander Bogarts? You know what? We're good with Trevor Story. It's just refreshing that we see a team that cares about his fan base and its homegrown stars. And this is coming from me, who I like a lot of the stuff the Sox did this offseason. And like I said, I can justify letting Bogarts go now, but that's not the point. The point is the deal could have already been done. And look, this isn't an apples-to-apples comparison, but letting Pasternak go would have been sort of the equivalent. And remember, Pasternak's probably going to finish runner-up in terms of the Hart Trophy to McDavid. Nobody can take it away from McDavid. I mean, if you watch that game the other night, this guy is ridiculous. I don't know how you can be at that top speed and still dangle around everybody. He is just an unbelievable player. But nonetheless, Pasternak will probably finish runner-up for the Hart Trophy. And Mookie Betts won MVP in 2018. So basically, it would be the equivalent of letting Mookie Betts go if the Bruins got rid of David Pasternak. They're not doing that, right? (laughs) This is really the star of the organization. And this is how you keep things going in the eventual post-Bergeron era. And by the way, just real quickly on the trading deadline in the NHL, the East is just loaded. I mean, the Rangers are just going nuts. They already had picked up Vladimir Tarasenko from St. Louis. They pick up Patrick Kane, which is just a luxury for the Rangers to have where it's like, yeah, I only want to go to New York, which is awesome for them. I mean, sucks for everybody else in the East. But you think about that team now. You have Panarin. You have 
Kreider, you have Zibanejev, you have Trocek. That team is loaded. And Shesterkin, who, of course, won the Vesna last year and took that team, what, one win away from the Stanley Cup final. He hasn't had the same year, but you know he can turn it on. And that team is loaded. Now, good thing for the Bruins. They wouldn't see them until the conference finals because they're in the Metropolitan. And Ryan O'Reilly, I mean, he moves to the Leafs, who Ryan O'Reilly gave the Bruins a ton of trouble in that 19 Cup. I don't have to remind you of that. But the trading deadline's been great. The East has been loaded. That's why it's so important that the Bruins are going to get that top seed because of the fact that the Leafs and the Lightning are going to have to beat up on each other prior to getting the Bruins. And the Metropolitan Division, that's going to be a beast in terms of the postseason as well. All right. So I do want to get to the Red Sox because I'm watching that game against the Phillies, the spring training game on Thursday, and Christian Arroyo comes up, hits an opposite field home run to right field, and then he hits a bomb for a grand slam off Griff McGarry, a righty. And look, young kid, third in the Phillies organization, by the way, according to MLB.com's prospect rankings. So the reason I bring this up is Christian Arroyo is going to get an opportunity to prove he's an everyday player, okay? We know they brought in Mondesi, who is coming back from an injury, but he's probably not going to be ready for the season. The big thing with Arroyo is his health. He's always injured. Now, maybe playing one position all the time, like second base, will keep him healthy because think about some of these injuries. He's out in the right field last year. (laughs) The year before he's playing first base, his first game at first base, he tries to stretch, he gets injured. So maybe this will help him that he's playing second base pretty much every day. And if you look at it, the reason I was, and by the way, he had two home runs in that spring training game. I was looking at Arroyo over the last two seasons, and we know he hits lefties really well, right? 310 average, 343 on base percentage, 481 slug. That's an 824 OPS. Then you take those numbers against righties. Remember, the the grand slam was against a righty. 259, 313 on base percentage, 395 slug below 400 and a 707 OPS. So my thought was, hey, if he could just at least hit for maybe a little bit more power against righties, or if he could just get on base a little bit more against righties, that 313 on base percentage, that's a tough combination. So he's got to figure one of those things out. Maybe he hits for a better average, which I think is the more likely scenario, or he hits for more more power. So Arroyo, really good defensive player. If you look at him in terms of at second base, just one error over the last two seasons at second base. And if you look at it, nine defensive runs saved, if you want to look at the advanced numbers on this, over 697 innings at second base over the past two seasons with the Red Sox. Trevor Story, who we know was going to be in the running for the gold glove at second base before all the injuries he compiled, he was at six defensive runs saved in 813 innings. So it just sort of tells you how good of a defensive player Arroyo is. And we know, as I said, he can hit lefties. Just the big thing for him, if he wants to be an everyday player in Major League Baseball, and he was a big-time prospect for the Giants, he's got to be able to hit right-handed pitching. But I was also looking at, as a team, I was thinking about this Red Sox lineup against right-handed pitching. They don't need Arroyo as a team. Now, Arroyo himself needs to improve against right-handed pitching, but as a team, they really don't. You look at the numbers last season for the Red Sox against righties. 255 average. That was fifth in Major League Baseball, so that was really good. But then you look at the power numbers, right? If you look at the home runs, 118, which was 18th in Major League Baseball. They did not hit a lot of home runs against right-handed pitching. The isolated power was 150, which was 16th in baseball. That's just basically the difference between your batting average and your slugging percentage. Basically, it tells you how often you're getting extra base hits. So the Red Sox did not hit with a lot of power against right-handed pitching. So they were good from an average perspective, but not in terms of a power perspective. So Xander Bogarts was great in terms of his average against righties, 286. And the problem was he only slugged 424. J.D. Martinez slugged 406 against righties, right? Like, that's atrocious. So the righty you added, Justin Turner, is actually 
better against righties than lefties, which you rarely see, right? So you look at these numbers against righties in his career, 295, almost a 370 on base percentage, 369, 470 slug, and 839 OPS. So you're basically getting the same player as Bogarts in terms of from an average standpoint against righties, and you're probably going to get a little bit more pop from Justin Turner. And then you think about what you've added in terms of you're a left-handed heavy lineup now. You added Yoshida, who, of course, is your hope is that he mashes against right-handed pitching, obviously. Rafi, we know, clobbers righties, as we mentioned earlier this week. Last season, 931 OPS against righties, 27 bombs, and he slugged 521. Verdugo hits righties well, 294 for his career, 812 OPS. And then Cassis is now going to be playing every day instead of like they started the season last year with Bobby Dahlback, who he can't hit anything. He certainly cannot hit right-handed pitching. So Cassis from the left side, even if he doesn't hit for a good average, he's going to walk. I mean, we mentioned this earlier this week with the Schwarber comparison in terms of the walk rate. All five home runs last year that he had, and it was just 95 plate appearances, they were all against righties, including one to opposite field against Garrett Cole, right? So this could be an elite lineup against right-handed pitching from both a power perspective and an average perspective. It's just something to keep in mind because 18th in home runs against right-handed pitching is not good enough. 16th in isolated power is not good enough. And I do really think that those things should change this season with the additions they made. All right, I did want to get to one Patriots thing. Chad Graff from The Athletic reported that... Quote, the Patriots' preference at this point would be to address the wide receiver position with a veteran rather than using their first-round pick on a receiver, that 14th overall pick. And I'm totally on board with this, right? Now, he mentions Hopkins and Brandon Cooks. I don't want to relive the Brandon Cooks experience. He's a good player. I just don't want him back. I mean, I'd much rather go big game hunting like if the other name is DeAndre Hopkins. I much prefer Hopkins, way better player, right? But the receiver class is not loaded as it's been in previous years, and you already took a shot last year in the second round on Tyquan Thornton. That's a big thing to give up, right? Your second round draft pick to get Tyquan Thornton. I like the idea. I like going after Tyquan Thornton. I'm all on board with that. But now I sort of want the proven commodity. And for the Patriots, just end being cute, right? I even bought into this last year, right? I mean, I remember when I was getting so hyped up for Kendrick Board, right? And I said, well, okay, 7.1 yak per reception, two years ago. That was the seventh best in the NFL. And then I looked at, okay, a 132.1 rating when he was targeted. That was third among players targeted at least 60 times. So my whole thing was give him more opportunities. And guess what? He's going to have a monster season. What did Matt Patricia do? (laughs) He gave him less opportunities. He went from 52% of the snaps to 44% of the snaps. There were games where we barely saw him on the field, right? So that didn't work. And then I thought, hey, Thornton has this crazy speed. He was the fastest receiver at the combine. He's going to contribute in year one. We know that he had a really good training camp, but unfortunately he suffers the shoulder injury. So he has a little bit of a slow start and he really only had that one big game against Cleveland. And I'm not saying that I don't believe in Thornton. I believe he could be a good player, but it's just sort of a work in progress. And it was last year, the stop and start with the injury. And then I thought, okay, and I I feel like just a complete idiot for buying into this one. But hey, maybe Aguilar in year two, because when he was successful with the Raiders, he was in the slot more. Maybe the Patriots will line him up in the slot more. They didn't do that. And look, he was a lost cause anyway. I don't believe, I never really believed in Aguilar. I was just kind of convincing myself. Maybe he can give you something. And then he was even less productive than he was two years ago, 22.6 yards per game. And he had a $14.8 million cap. It just an atrocious contract from the beginning. He gave you absolutely nothing as a Patriot, except that one great catch against Pittsburgh. And then Parker was solid, but he's not a game breaker. I mean, you look at Devontae Parker, 1.7 yards per 
route in terms of the separation when he's targeted. 1.7 yards. You know where that ranked in the NFL last? Same as two years ago. Same as three years ago. This guy gets no separation. Yes, he can do some contested catch things like all that. But you know what? I mean, Mac had four interceptions targeting this guy. He's a fine player, but he's not like going to be this big time contributor, right? So the Patriots have a lot to do. They need to improve the offensive line. They need to add a corner, all that different type of stuff. But the two necessary things to me, the two most important things to me, especially for Mac Jones, get rid of Mac, get rid of Matty P and get a real coordinator. They did that. That's done. Bill O'Brien is back. Number two on my list was get a number one target. And it seems like from this report from Chad Graff from The Athletic, it seems like it's going to happen. He's finally buying into that logic. Think about what A.J. Brown meant to Jalen Hurts. Think about what Tyreek Hill meant to Tua. Think about what Stephon Diggs for, did for Josh Allen all those years ago. Get Mac Jones a legitimate number one option, and it's starting to feel like Bill is actually going to do it. All right, coming up next, we're going to introduce something really cool that we're going to be doing over the next week or so. We'll hit that next. Welcome back into Off the Pike. So I'm very excited for this, guys, okay? So we have a fun new segment as FanDuel, of course, is coming to Massachusetts. You guys are going to get to participate in this, okay? So to get fired up, I wanted to take a look at some of the biggest, I wish I could have bet on that moments over the past 20 years. Now, FanDuel has given me the odds from eight different games, and we've set up a fun bracket to figure out which is the favorite, okay? So today we'll talk through the first two matchups, and then you can find a poll on the Ringer Twitter account, and you can vote for which one you could have, you wish you could have bet on. Okay, so let me start with this. So basically, I went through my favorite games and some of the situations, moments over the past 20 years, and they all have great stories behind them. Okay, so let's start with the 1-8 matchup. The number one seed in our FanDuel, I wish I could have bet on this bracket, is the Red Sox-Yankees 2004 ALCS. Do you know what the odds were entering game four, where the Yankees had a 3-0 series lead? Plus 12,000, plus 12,000. The odds were so good. I mean, you might as well have taken them, right? Even though you probably, like me, didn't think the Red Sox were coming back from losing three in a row to the New York Yankees. But I bring this up because this is one of the best, or I should say, some of the best days of sports watching in terms of my experience. I didn't grow up in the 1980s, right? Like I, I didn't get to witness the Bird Celtics in person. But man, remember the video that came out where Kevin Millar tells Dan Shaughnessy before game four, hey, Dan, don't let us win today. We win tonight. We got Pedro. Then we got Schilling. And it actually happened. And first team to ever come back from down 3-0 in Major League Baseball. And remember, they lost game three, 19-8. Like you were just completely deflated. And then the eighth inning of game four, you're down 4-3. Millar leads off the inning with a walk. Dave Roberts steals second as the pinch runner. Then Bill Miller's singles, which brings in Roberts. You tie it up in game four. Twelfth inning. Remember, this is extra innings of game four when you're already down three games to none. Manny a leadoff single. David Ortiz, the two-run walk-off home run to right field. And David Ortiz, the legend, was being born there. Okay, so then you go to game five because it's 3-1. I mean, you still don't think you're going to win this thing. Game five, eighth inning, Ortiz takes Tom Gordon deep, makes it a one-run game, and then Veritek ties things up with a sack fly. Then in the 14th, Ortiz again, a walk-off single. And then you're like, holy shit, something's happening here. Game six, the bloody sock Kurt Schilling, where Schilling has a procedure before the game. 
and he pitches an absolute gem against the New York Yankees. That's the reason you brought in Kurt Schilling. And then Game 7, of course, we all know. That was an absolute party. You had the Damon home run. There was no chance the Red Sox were losing Game 7, right? Like, nobody thought that was going to happen. So just an incredible moment. So that's the number one seed. It has to be. I mean, that's the greatest one I've experienced in my life. And it's not even the World Series. You knew you were going to beat the Cardinals. But coming back from 3 nothing against the Yankees, it was unbelievable. All right, so the 8 seed. I mean, this is going to be tough to beat the 0-4 Red Sox. But this is an interesting one to me. One of my favorite sort of under-the-radar series that we've had is... The Celtics and the Wizards game seven in 2017. Now, the Celtics, according to our friends at FanDuel, they were the four point, they were four point favorites entering this game. And this was like a low-key rivalry. Remember, like Crowder and John Wall got into a scuffle in a January game. The next game, the Wizards were all black in terms of they were dressing for the Celtics funeral during the regular season. The Wizards won that game. But Isaiah Thomas called it cute and said, this isn't game seven. This is during the regular season. So the beef was starting. And then the Seas showed up for game six in Washington when they were up three games to two when the playoffs actually started in all black and they lose. And John Wall starts taking shots at them. Don't come to my city in all black, blah, blah, blah. So then what transpired in game seven, nobody would have expected, right? Remember who the hero was. Kelly Olenek, the Olenek game. He actually has a game named after him. Off the bench, 10 for 14, 26 points. Kelly Olenek had 26 points. Isaiah Thomas did his thing, 29 and 12. He was great in that postseason run. But it was just a wild, short-lived rivalry. The Celtics and the Wizards, it was crazy. And the Wizards, that team always talked smack. Remember they were always talking about, hey, the Cavs avoided us, like John Wall and Bradley Beal. Those, those teams were good, those Wizards teams. But they thought they were a lot better than they actually were. And Isaiah Thomas and the upstart Celtics, and everybody loves IT. I mean, think about the guy he had after him and Kyrie Irving, right? Everybody loved IT. He was tremendous is for the Celtics, but that was just, it was a series that didn't mean a lot in the long run, right? Like it was the second round against the Washington Wizards, but I just thoroughly enjoyed the back and forth between those two teams. And then it was Kelly Olenek who played hero. All right. So that brings me to the four or five matchup in the FanDuel bracket of games. I wish I could have bet on that. So this is a battle people get ready for this one. The four seed, the Patriots chiefs, AFC title game FanDuel. And that was in 2018, of course. FanDuel gave us the pregame odds at plus 155 on the money line, okay? So now, this was right after Tom Brady had said in an interview to Tracy Wolfson after the win against the Chargers, everybody thinks we suck. And it felt like, and James White confirmed this to me when we had him on a couple of weeks ago before the Super Bowl, that from James White's perspective, that this fired up the team. Like, this is a motivation thing where Tom's like, everybody thinks we suck. The Patriots weren't that great that year during the regular season. For the Patriots, they were 11-5, and five, right? So you go into Arrowhead, you take a 14 to nothing lead to the locker room, and you're feeling unreal as a Patriots fan, right? They're going to do it. They're going to beat the Chiefs, right? And they're going to stop the next dynasty. And then what happens? Well, in the fourth quarter, Pat Mahomes went, well, Pat Mahomes, he had, he, they put up 24 points in the fourth, you go to overtime. And then remember the emotions you had from, hey, they're going back to the Super Bowl to, we better win the coin toss. We have to win the coin toss. We have to win the coin toss. And they do, right? They win the coin toss. And then even in that final drive, like Brady had to pull off a miracle. He converted three third and longs, Brady to Edelman third and 10, again to Edelman on a third and 10, and then to Gronk on a third and 10, and then eventually Burkhead punches it in. But remember, after the after that touchdown by Burkhead, Brady's running, he throws off the helmet, he's got the scuba suit underneath. It was just an unbelievable moment 
one of the best wins of the Brady-Belichick era, where it felt like, okay, maybe the Patriots are done. Now they have one more shot at this thing. That was an unbelievable game. All right. So like I said, this competition is really tough. The five seed in the FanDuel, I wish I could have bet on that bracket. So now you have the Chiefs and the Patriots in the four seed. The five seed is the Patriots and the Seahawks. Remember, they were down 28 to 14 in that game. And FanDuel had the odds at plus 500 at that point when they, they were down 28 to 14 or 24 to 14, rather. So first off, remember, the Pats, and I'm going to sound super spoiled when I say this, they hadn't won a Super Bowl since 04. They lost to the Giants in 07. And of course, they would lose to them again. And then you run into this Legion of Boom defense who they had just beaten Peyton Manning in the previous season and they destroyed him. And this is the year that Peyton Manning had 55 touchdown passes. So what happens in the Super Bowl? The running game is completely taken away from the Patriots. They ran for 2.7 yards per carry. So it's all on Tom and the Patriots are from behind. Tom throws for 328 yards and four TDs in that game. And remember, fourth quarter, 13 of 15, 124 yards, two touchdowns against one of the greatest defenses in recent history, and they knew it was coming. They knew they couldn't run. They knew they had to throw, and Tom still shredded them and was 13 of 15. And by the way, they kept putting linebackers on Gronk when Gronk would lie up wide. Thank you very much, Pete Carroll. But anyway, even that, like Tom Brady's fourth quarter, it still wasn't enough because you had that insane curse catch where he's on the ground, he catches on his back. You're like, no, not again. And it was in Glendale, the site of the helmet catch. And remember, you're thinking about the Giants, the Manningham catch as well. No, it can't happen, right? But then what happens? Malcolm Butler, the interception on Russell Wilson. I still don't know why they didn't run it. Pete Carroll is an idiot for doing that. And Tom's yelling at Malcolm Butler. He's looking for him after the game, screaming Malcolm, just unreal. So that was just an unbelievable, those two, I mean, we'll see how you guys vote, but that is a very, very difficult matchup to sort of decide which one is the clear cut better one that you wish you could go back and bet on. All right. So one versus eight, 04 comeback against the Yankees. Celts and Wizards in 17 is the eight seed. Four versus five, Pats Chiefs AFC title game. And then the Patriots Seahawks in the Super Bowl following the 2014 season. So we'll have those results on Sunday when we pod again and then introduce the two other matchups. I'm really looking forward to this. So make sure you head to the Ringer Twitter to vote on both polls. Also head to fanduel.com slash mass to sign up for their great pre-live offers and get yourself ready for the launch. 21 plus and present in Massachusetts, if your loved one is experiencing gambling problems, call 1-800-327-5050 or visit www.mahelpline.org slash problem gambling to speak with a trained specialist for free 24-7. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172. Again, that's 617-396-7172. You can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Cliff Augustine for filling in for Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast. And we'll be back on Sunday. <laughs>